Hey everybody, and welcome back to Time Extend. Uh, it's been a while. How you doing, Brendan? Yeah, pretty good, Adam. I'm looking forward to discussing some of the latest news, but really it'll be the feature topic this week that we'll really be wanting to get stuck into, I guess. Yeah, and uh, I blew right past the introduction, and we're not as famous as we think we are. So Time Extend is a racing game podcast. My name's Adam, his name is Brendan, and that's really all you need to know, I guess. So, yeah. <laughs> Let's get into it. Um, so, yeah, there's there's been some news over uh, the last month or so since we had our last show. Not a lot of huge announcements or anything like that, but I think a good place to start is that uh, Gran Turismo Sport had their big, uh, their first big events in the form of they had their European Championship and... Uh, the American Championship is right around the corner, and then they just announced that they were going to have the World Final in Monaco. And uh, I didn't watch a ton of these events, um, but from what I heard, everything went really smoothly, and while it's not getting a ton of mainstream recognition, I would say, at this point, I think the people who paid attention and, and just seeing like the social media interest from people who are fans of, of sim racing and, and also, uh, you know, Sony's own promotion of the event seemed pretty high, uh, in my opinion. Yeah, definitely. Um, we're looking at the first year of the championship and it's quite impressive how it's all went off without a hitch because you're expecting to hear some horror stories at least, but um, the American finals were in Las Vegas, for example. That's a pretty high, like, kind of high regard place to host an event like this when it doesn't really have a built-up audience yet, but yeah, it's good to see GT Sport realise its FIA ambitions and hell, the world finals are going to be hosted in Monte Carlo and it doesn't get more lucrative than that. Yeah, and uh, the way things have been going so far, where they've hosted the events has pretty much directly resulted in some some extra tracks added, added to uh, the list of tracks in the game, so... We know now that we're going to get Catalonia because that debuted during the uh, during the European event, and we, based on uh, on a Forbes article that I saw uh, somebody in the GT Planet community linked to, uh, it it strongly looks like we probably get Monaco. Um, if they're going to Monaco as it is uh, to do this event, it only makes sense. And I think I saw Laguna Seca uh, name dropped as well, which Laguna Seca actually is the one I'd be really excited for because uh, obviously classic Gran Turismo track. Uh, we've been playing Gran Turismo for years. Its absence in GT Sport was uh, one that one that I definitely felt, and it's just such a fun little, you know, relatively short track, but packs a lot of excitement and a lot of really amazing corners. So I'm excited about that. Yeah, definitely. It would be great additions to the game and more than ever I feel myself wanting to get fully invested into the sport mode purely because when you see this type of thing take off, it does make you more interested on what GT Sport offers in that mode. The competitive racing is probably the best in its class, or I'd go as far as to say it is the best in its class. And now we're seeing the drivers who are at the, the very top get the rewards in competing in these tournaments. And I'm just, I'm, I'm checking like a review article from Jordan Greer over at GT Planet and he's commenting on how all the drivers were treated to staying in a luxury five-star hotel, <laughs> got all their meals paid for, and even had a crazy party after the whole shindig with Kazanori Yamauchi himself. Yeah, I'm trying to imagine what Kaz is like in the party setting and I don't think I can even comprehend it, so I'm not going to make any assumptions. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's... 
You know, all of those points, just the, the treatment of the drivers and everything brings up uh, something I saw this week that I actually saw a lot of people commenting on. And uh, I don't know if you saw this, but Maurizio Rivabeni, uh, the guy who, who runs basically Ferrari's F1 team, Scuderia Ferrari, uh, they were talking to him about basically it was motorsport week. Uh, they were talking to him about what he needs to or what F1 needs to do to basically survive in, in this age of um not not just in the context of other racing series to get more fans, but but also in this digital age where there's so many different forms of entertainment. And I mean, the River Benny, it seems like without skipping a beat, he just pretty much says like, I I don't think that our our opponent F1's competition is is other racing or other other real you know, or not real, but traditional sports, I think it's PlayStation, and I think it's Gran Turismo, and he actually, he actually did say those names specifically, and I mean, when I read that, you know, we, we have this view of Ferrari as a very traditional, by-the-book company, the idea of the boss of Ferrari recognizing these new forms of media, and treating sim racing and esports as a legitimate competitor to formula one i i was blown away and i was very impressed yeah and if we're going to be honest he's probably right in terms of what sony and polyphony have achieved so far it is impressive it's still very early days and they've covered the event incredibly well but maybe not had the audience response they were looking for but you plant that seed in people's minds in this case the boss of ferrari for god's sake and it starts to get brought up, so who knows? Perhaps we might see some real works teams and not simply just like the manufacturers in the game being represented. Uh, we see it in the Formula One series, for example, where all the esports teams are pretty much real Formula One teams, and perhaps Fa- Ferrari might actually start to take notice of what's going on in the GT Sport Championships and what they can do to get involved. Yeah, and when you look at GT Sports, the focus obviously on. Um you know, on, like, real manufacturers and locations and, and you know, uh, basically people's countries of origins and things like that. It makes sense. GT Sport is well-suited for that. But, you know, this was the first real wave of, uh, of Gran Turismo events, and I was just wondering, because you've been following the Rocket League Championships for a while, and I know uh, I know you had said a while back you told me that you had gone to the World Final uh, when it was uh, hosted in the U.K., and obviously Rocket League is at, you know, the upper plane of esports right now is like, I feel like it's Rocket League, Fortnite, and, and I guess Overwatch 2. But, you know, this, this kind of stuff doesn't happen overnight. And I was just wondering if there was any way that you could compare like, you know, Rocket League and its earliest, uh, earliest attempts at, at doing this esports thing, uh, doing these tournaments to what, you know, Sony and Polyphony have done with Gran Turismo so far. Well, I mean, right out of the bat, I would say that Gran Turismo is pretty much like on an entirely different plane to what uh, Psyonics achieved with the Rocket League Championship Series in their first year. Um, for example, these kind of regional championships that Gran Turismo have had have had like double the capacity in terms of um, attendees that the first Rocket League Championship Series has. Wow. Well, I mean, we also have to bear in mind here that we're talking about one of the biggest gaming conglomerates in the world backing something, and then on the other side, some, at the time, small indie title that nobody expected to blow up like it has. But the, the, the thing is here that Rocket League was able to build an audience that properly, religiously watched 
every esports series, not even just the championship series, which is the equivalent of the Super Bowl for Americans and the Champions League for us in Europe. Like, there's a good dedicated fan base there that knows the players, knows their quirks. And this is the thing for Sony and Gran Turismo going forward. Getting people to these events is great, and by linking it in with car shows, that type of thing, that's fantastic. You're going to get people there. But at that point in time, and this might be a bit harsh, you can consider that tourist income, basically. It's just people going to watch the event because it's there. Where Gran Turismo needs to thrive is getting that audience that consistently watches the drivers, they know their quirks, they understand like what's going on, and even have favourites. Because, let's be honest, we, if you watch sports, you have a favourite team. And Formula One's no different in the sense that people have favourite drivers. So I'd like to think that once we get this first year done, and I just can't wait to see the mainstream media's reaction when a, a, a video game player gets to get a real trophy at an FIA event. And I think that's when people go, wow, this is serious. This guy's literally been honoured by the biggest motorsport like uh, officiating body in the world. And yeah, I think right now, Gran Turismo's off to an amazing start because they've had that backing from Sony and they've took feedback on board. I mean, just as a minor point, I remember when I watched the very first championships, they didn't actually have the driver names. They just had the manufacturer names above the cars, and that annoyed me to no end because it yeah, totally I think I remember that. Element. <laughs> yeah, it, it, was, it was really stupid at the time, and um, I can see the logic for it, and let's be honest, this is an entirely new kind of foray into the esports realm, so it's understandable, but they took that advice on board. When you're watching these events now, you can tell who's who. And that is very important because that's what made the Rocket League Championship Series so big. There's guys that can do amazing things and because you can instantly recognise them on the field, then that's what keeps you interested and keeps you watching. So I'd say in terms of events and organisations, Gran Turismo is arguably achieving um, what took Rocket League seven years. And now it's just a case of how do you build that audience and keep people interested once the novelty wears off. Yeah, I mean, it's like what you said. You, you'd expect that Sony would be able to do this pretty well right out of the gate because they're freaking Sony. Um, so it's good that they have. But yeah, I, I think the, the human drama, you know, obviously Kaz, when he introduced Gran Turismo Sport, talked about human drama and, and what that could mean um, for the series and for gaming and for entertainment and everything. And, and uh, I, I think it's hard to achieve that I mean, it's it's directly related to as a direct relationship with the success of the game, right? So I mean, everyone knows. Well, not everyone, because I don't I don't watch Fortnite streamers and, and esports and stuff like that. But you know, I, I have a feeling the people who are really into Fortnite know their know their guys. You know, know their guys and girls in terms of who they like to watch, who's yep. competitive, who they're fans of. I keep hearing this ninja guy a lot about him. He yeah. knows Drake or something. So yeah, that's like that's a big deal, and and it's interesting because in the last uh, over the last six months, you know, Lydia, my girlfriend. Uh, just randomly got really interested in Formula One. And, I mean, we had watched some races uh, early on in the season, and I, I, I didn't want to make her sit through anything because I didn't know how... I assumed it wasn't very interesting to her, but I, I guess she uh, she got bitten by the bug or, or something like that because she liked it. And she's just been 
obsessed with it honestly over the last uh, over the last few months it's really great because it's something we can both enjoy and honestly her fandom for f1 exceeds mine right now but when we talk about <laughs> it it's i mean she she enjoys the racing and she she likes watching it but and this is someone who wasn't interested in racing at all uh before but for her i think it it is the drama between the drivers the teams the context of everything all of that and and you know, that goes along with a quote I read on Reddit the other day that was basically like, you know, F1 is just like soap operas for, for dudes, right? Um, so, <laughs> yeah. yeah, just some, some kind of masculine, uh, you know, play or opera or something like that. So, yeah, like, I, I think all of that is essential to why we enjoy sports. And,. I feel like it's a really tough thing to achieve that with the video game, but evidently if if you have the kind of game that is widely accessible, like a Rocket League or, you know, like a Fortnite or an Overwatch or something like that, then that's easier to do. So yeah, I don't know I don't know how Gran Turismo competes with that, but like you were saying, it was their first first real attempt. I mean they had they had done other, you know, smaller tournaments and things before that, but nothing on this scale. And uh, I think it was a promising one overall, by by the sound of it. Yeah, definitely. And um, just to kind of bring it back into that human element, it doesn't necessarily even have to do with the game, like we're saying, it's the competitors, much like Formula One, because there's, there's a, a pretty funny story that I'll just briefly go into in the Rocket League community that happened. So basically, one of the best players in the world um, was playing um, in his team against one of the lesser teams, um, in the league play phase before the playoffs and essentially what happened was um, the series actually ended 3-2 because it's a best of five and most people were really shocked by that and then the guy tweeted out on his Twitter account should have been 3-0 but GG anyway and it was like that level of salt that would then like the fans just lost their nut because it was like, so funny to see like somebody <laughs> be so like petty and salty about <laughs> still winning the match so when we were at the World Championship Finals, there were so many people holding up signs and banners that just said, should have been 3-0, but GG anyway, any time <laughs> like a series ended. And like, that was a whole season, like three months of constant bans about that one moment. And that's what I'd like to see, like, these guys are racing and they're getting interviewed afterwards. And look, I, I'm, I know it's hard to be charismatic, especially... When, I mean, all you're doing is playing a video game at the end of the day, but there's just there's so many things you can do. Like, for example, the Australian Rocket League community don't get as many views as the EU and uh, America's ones. Mm -hmm. But, like, one of the guys, CJ, who plays for um, the Chiefs, I believe it is, um, when they do their walkout to come onto the stage to play, he came out like a tiny BMW, like, electric car. He <laughs> just oh, kind of like, awesome. drove up to the stage. <laughs> And like that was it. Like, from that moment on, the entire crowd was endeared with his team, and they had the backing of like three thousand five hundred people for the entire tournament. Essentially, even when they get put out, people were still chanting his team's name because like the fans just got on board with it. And that that's what that, that's the that's the goal Sony and Gran Turismo have to try and achieve: make people care about these people. They're treating them fantastically internally. Get them the exposure they deserve outside of that. Absolutely. Yeah, so I'm excited for the future, and uh, in terms of other things we can talk about, uh, you've been pretty interested in a little game called Grip, as I understand it, which I really should know more about, but I don't. 
<laughs> so I'll give you a quick TLDR then. Um, basically, Grip is a game by uh, Caged Element, who were started by one guy who really liked the series Roll Cage, PlayStation 1. He's a huge fan of the game and often wondered why there was never any new ones. Um, obviously, it was Psygnosis that were behind the game and Sony kind of left it. Well, sorry, it wasn't even Sony that was involved. It was Psygnosis on their own because it was on the PC as well. Oh, um, wow. And it was pretty popular. People who liked Wipeout especially over here loved it. And um, it was it was great fun. But it just kind of disappeared in the, the gaming sands of time as some series do so this guy was like you know what I'm going to start my own fan project um, try and get this off of the ground cut three four years later um, the, the game got an official distributor it's made by a team of about 14 people now and they've done what I consider the impossible they're going to have a full simultaneous worldwide launch on every console including the Switch next week for Grip and th that is so impressive for me as someone who has watched how poorly Formula Fusion was handled by the X-Wipeout developers. Um, yeah. That's one of the reasons I'm so excited for Grip, because these guys had a goal and they managed to attain it. Um, and this is bearing in mind they had a failed Kickstarter as well, mm. and they're still going to get a finished game. It's, it's very impressive, and I can't wait to give it a go. So, we'll come back to Grip. I don't mean to change the subject too much, but I wondered, and I tried to look it up recently, Whatever happened to Formula Fusion? Because I was so psyched about that game. I mean, I'm glad that you, you actually want to talk about this one because okay. it's something that um, all 12 remaining Wipeout fans in the world are also wondering. And that there just isn't any official news. They came out the gate with this really impressive concept trailer. They, they appeared at some game shows with real gameplay footage. And, yep, yeah, it just kind of disappeared. Well, from what I understand, it had a full release, but the full release yes, was with, like, no content, and yeah. was very buggy and had a lot of problems, and they haven't fixed that at all, and I think I think if it was any other, fan, you know, quote-unquote fan game, I know it was made by some ex-Wipeout devs, but if it was any other indie project, then you'd say, like, okay, whatever, but the reason why that one particularly stung for me is because I had the full involvement of the Designers Republic, which, as any Wipeout fan knows, is, is the reason why, you know, the first three Wipeout games especially look and feel the way that they do is, is this graphic design firm from the UK. So, yeah, I mean, to get them on board and then to completely squander the project like that just seems criminal. See, the thing was with this game, I, I was always pretty weary of what they proposed because they, they went into so much detail about the fact that you could customise your ships and tweak weaponry and all this type of thing. And I don't know about you, Adam, but that just seemed to derive from what made Wipeout so great in the first place. It felt like an unnecessary expansion of the gameplay. And then they talked about how much they wanted to make the gameplay also kind of more weighty than Wipeout and just even from gameplay footage it just didn't seem to have that wipeout feel it just seemed like another um kind of two-bit anti-gravity racer and that's what was unfortunate about formula fusion the devs promised it would reach consoles and well, it was definitely not happening now is it it's it's a shame how it ended up and you're right about the scarcity of content that's what shocked everyone else because they kept talking about these lofty customization options and then the game itself was barely a beta yeah, it just seems like a, a mismatch, 
priorities, basically. Um, because at the end of the day, you can set your sights for you know eventually coming out with some sort of customization component to a game. I don't think anyone would, would complain about that, but make sure you get the core of the game finished first and make sure there are enough tracks and teams and, and other forms of content uh, to bide people's time. If you have a kind of a half-assed customization component, but the rest of the game isn't sound, no one's going to care. Uh, it's surprising exactly. to me because, you know, obviously it was developed by the uh, original, uh, some of the original team. But, well, I'll share it here for Formula Fusion. But we got Grip, um, so that's exciting. And I, I never played Roll Cage, <laughs> weirdly enough. Uh, was it a series or was there only one? Uh, it was actually a series. Huh. Most notably, Stage 2, the second game in the series being considered the best. And it seems to be a strange one because over here, like, it's a very well known series and it was hailed pretty well. But, I mean, was that not the case in America then? Was it much different? Was it just Wipeout that was kind of more well known? Yeah, I, w- I would say Wipeout was the most well known. I mean, I, I feel like I always have to introduce this caveat every time we talk about really old games where it's like, yeah, I wasn't like aware of everything that was going on in the world when I was like fucking like seven or eight or nine or however old I was but um no I I can just say that among people in the U.S. I already I think Wipeout was like if you're gonna talk about like the most distinctly uh British games I guess to make it like all across the world like in, in get that mainstream recognition i feel like wipeout was one of them like it was born out of out of the british music scene like the club music scene involved a british um design house obviously was made by a british team so like that was very much like a a love letter to and from the uk and i don't know how roll cage was but but i think wipeout seemed like almost over here like it was successful but i think it was almost like this weird european thing yeah um, <laughs> i mean i loved it it's one of my favorite game series of all time obviously but uh yeah so i think uh i think wipeout kind of had that both playing to its quirkiness and against its success in the u.s but yeah i don't know anything about how roll cage i don't hear about it as much so i doubt it so like um basically if Wipeout was a love letter to the entire kind of like um, UK dance house industry and that's where it was born from. Roll Cage was very much drum and bass. Like that also had an incredible soundtrack that included mm. the likes of um, some original tracks from Fatboy Slim and um, just in general a really great soundtrack and even the track design and stuff it's more focused on that like chaotic element of flipping upside down and constantly driving on the roofs. It was more intense than Wipeout but it had the totally different angle of having really heavy vehicles. Like it was, hmm. it was almost like controlling tanks with a fucking rocket launcher on the back. <laughs> um, so it has completely different feel to Wipeout, but very much in the same universe. It honestly feels like a spin-off more than anything. Um, and funnily enough, I've just looked it up now, and apparently outside of Europe, it was known as Death Track Racing as well. Not sure if that rings a bell. No, I think it was Roll Cage here. I'm pretty sure. It oh, was. right. Okay. But, must have been other locations then. Yeah. No, it's so interesting that Pignosis worked on this other uh, racing property and it didn't get Sony's backing, so it wasn't. I, I think for the longest time, I assumed it was a PC-only title. But I think maybe in the US, that might be where a lot of people experienced it. So, um, 
yeah, it's, I mean, it's cool. I'll definitely give Grip a try. Uh, it's, I mean, it's, it's very nice to, to hear a successful story about, you know, um, an independent game that really harkens back to something we love because I've just been inundated between Formula Fusion and, and all these other titles. Uh, I was really excited for a while about the 90s arcade racer. Did oh, you ever hear yeah. about that one? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I even backed it. That was the first game I ever backed, the first thing I ever backed, and it was just a complete money pit um, and is never coming out. Um was never particularly interested in Drift Stage because Drift Stage goes back to, even though it has a 32-bit style, it goes back to really 16-bit racing games, which is something that is a little before my time that I don't have much of an interest in. But that, that seems to be another case where, like, not as bad as uh, perhaps as Formula Fusion because it seems like they really do have a game running and it's been, I think, I think, I think it's been, like, a green light thing and you've been able to get demos of it. But that game, too, is also in this place where it's, like, they're putting out a lot of content in terms of like videos and you know gifs of various things in the game and the soundtrack but the game isn't out yet and it's been that way for like four years it seems like um yeah it's it's a story all too well told across the board yeah. uh, but racing games in particular are like I guess it's a bit of blind optimism on our part because even even with grip which does see the release which is fantastic it does look incredibly cheap and that is the thing like they obviously got it to a position where they were happy enough with the gameplay and how it was to send it out there knowing that they could make the most polished uh, roll cage spiritual successor in the world and still only sell 12 copies this was pretty much a a labour of love from the start and um, they've achieved their goal of getting it on every console and I mean that's the thing I'm simultaneously excited about it launching on the Switch but also incredibly weary judging on some early gameplay footage I've seen yeah well next show we'll, uh, we'll have a full report and maybe maybe I'll play some of it too and yep definitely. hopefully we'll be <laughs> hopefully we'll be pleasantly surprised uh, for sure yeah so speaking of um, games we're looking forward to that look incredibly weary Team Sonic Racing <laughs> so it got delayed um, since the last time we had our show from uh, December to May 21st, 2019, which is, I mean, you, yeah, I mean, like you can delay a game, but, but Jesus Christ, six months. I mean, that, that is tough, especially because like, you know, we, we were talking about this game after it was announced at E3 and we were already kind of skeptical of it because it seemed to be one of those cases where it's like, okay, Sumo Digital is making a Sonic Racing game. This has worked so many times in the past, but it seems like they deliberately, well, not they, probably Sega, but deliberately tried to unlearn uh, all the lessons and forget all the great things about Transformed, which was definitely uh, the height of... Of, of all of Sumo's efforts related to Sega. That was a fantastic game. Not, not just a great racing game or a kart racer, but just a great game all around. Um, you know, the gameplay itself was fantastic, but the track design was impeccable. The soundtrack was great. Uh, tons of fan service for Sega fans. And then I guess Sega decides, like, we want to basically scrap all of that, take, take this back to being a Sonic racer, which, like, even Sonic All-Star, you know, the first one, you know, had Sega content in it. Just get rid of all of it and then start over with, as uh, as someone at my job, uh, a Tom's guy, uh, noted to me a couple months back, they're using the animations from the first game, not even the second one, um, oh, when they when the they hell? do tricks and things. Yeah, so it 
there are a lot of things to be unsure about uh, and that have me kind of concerned about this game. And now that it's been delayed in there six months, it's not looking good. I mean, in all honesty, I just think it looks quite frankly really boring. <laughs> Any gameplay footage that I've seen so far, it just looks so slow and methodical, whereas Transform's biggest positive was how insanely fast everything was, especially when you reached the S-speed class, that was insane. Um, yeah. But this one, I'm not quite sure what they're trying to achieve. The excitement of the race doesn't seem there, but they seem to have really kind of sound team racing mechanics that I wouldn't have minded and Transformed, but the way the game plays and their obsession with showing like two tracks so far I mean it's not a surprise that it got delayed but to get delayed to this extent shows that maybe just maybe they've realised that it was a bit of a disaster waiting to happen and with Sumo's fairly good record overall working with Sega I'm happy to see the delay but the thing that really worries me the most is I just don't think that only Sonic characters is going to have that pull regardless of what they pull off that No, absolutely not. Had. Because I'm a Sonic fan and I don't even give a shit. Like that's that's <laughs> the that's the problem and uh, and obviously I know you are too, but yeah, I can't help thinking like as I think about the fact that they're launching this new Sonic racing game that cribs lots of things from older games except for a team element but also loses a lot of things, I can't help but wonder why didn't they just go the route of basically porting Transform to the Switch, but doing it in like a Mario Kart 8 Deluxe way, where they add content to it? Because we know we know that Transform could run on the Switch because it ran on the freaking Vita. So yeah. it would not be hard for them to port that game. I mean, every port takes time, but I think that would be among the easier ones. And if they add content to it, I mean, you could sell that as a new game. Sega did it with Sonic Mania Plus and, and Mario uh, Mario Kart 8 Deluxe was a similar fashion. So, and and people love Transform. That's already a game that's been successful. I, I I feel like that would have just made more sense than making an entirely new game that's also worse. <laughs> there was a an April Fool's joke. I think it was the Sonic Stadium ran and like it was um, Sonic Transform Deluxe and it had like three new tracks. Bayonetta, um, some characters from Yakuza, Kiryu was in mm, there, yeah. um, and it just sounded incredible, but maybe possible to be true, because they put out the two weeks ahead of April Fool's to get the jump on it, and then it was just that, so That's unfair, that's not, even, that's not even <laughs> April Fool's joke. <laughs> exactly. Oh, and come when on. The, the full game got announced, like the new one, because, sorry, I should dial back a bit, we actually discussed the possibility of a, a new Sonic Racing game yes, around the time that joke went out. <laughs> yeah. So, like, oh my god. And, like, they even said, like, Miku would be in there as well because they obviously have the Project Diva rights. And um, and then the, the full game gets announced and it's just like, oh my word. It's the total opposite of what that rumour was, mm. basically. And, I mean, I noticed they uploaded like, one of the new music tracks um, on Twitter recently. And it was actually a T-Lopes that was... Um, that, the kind of composer for this and he helped a lot with Sonic Mania hmm. so that's got me interested to see if maybe they've thought about incorporating more Sonic Mania stuff in there that we don't quite know yet but it intrigues me like 4% put it that way it's something that would be cool to have in there but the core problem with this game is going to be to make me care about the kind of generic Sonic Colors locations they'll probably abuse for the 14th time yeah 
it, it would be cool if they did something that was like you know all of these uh, tracks and uh, characters are, are in the graphical style of a certain Sonic game or something like that. That might be cool. Uh, I'm just trying to think of ways they could make it more interesting. But at the end of the day, Sega is a company with a with a rich history that goes well beyond Sonic, and getting rid of all of that extra content just seems like a, a waste. So. Yeah. It's a huge waste, and it comes in the same. Like, this discussion comes in the same week that um, Sega announced their own brawler, like Smash Brothers, but only for mobile. Oh yeah, and, that's right. Like Sega's been taking a lot of W's recently. They, they've <laughs> been doing great, I think, and just this Sonic Team Racing delay combined with that mobile-only fighter kind of made me a bit sad because I think there's there's still a market in general console. Like kind of the general console audience for some Sega fan service. I don't think that that ship has totally sailed, but we're a bit biased, I guess. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, they're so hit and miss, and the Sega Forever thing was obviously such a complete, just I, you could basically call it a lie. They they didn't put in any extra effort, honestly, to get these games on various different platforms and and the ports of games, the things that they were talking about in Sega Forever, which if you don't know and you're listening to this because we should remember this is a racing game podcast, uh, was their initiative so that they could get basically their, not their entire back catalog, but a lot of their back catalog on uh, mobile platforms, which, you know, could at that point maybe extend the consoles and PC as well. Really all they decided to do was just take the shoddy ports that have been basically kicking around for, you know, 10 years on various different platforms, rebrand them as uh, Sega Forever titles with uh, that were free to play, and that was it. You know, they didn't they didn't put any effort into there there was some talk early on about like, oh we'll get maybe we'll get some Saturn titles in there. No, that's never gonna happen. Uh and, and it's very clear. I mean the only <laughs> the only part of Sega that has any interest in, in actually honoring the past is M two, um, as they're working on their virtual racing port, which is uh, super exciting. Um But that said, uh, as as we talk about M two and Team Sonic Racing doesn't look ver- doesn't look that enthralling, uh, we should also add that uh, the guys that are working on uh, the Sega Ages games, they have confirmed uh, in, in, uh, in an interview that they've they've actually been able to get Naomi hardware running uh, through the Switch. Uh, was it just the Switch or was it other consoles as well? They specifically mentioned only the Switch hmm. because I think. Um, well, the ages right, um, right. series is only on Switch, isn't yeah, it? So yeah. they're kind of focused on that, which is great news. Um, as somebody who, well, we both really love their ports to date so far. This is this is actually pretty big because Dreamcast can't be that far away now, and I'm guessing they've said something similar to that. Yeah, it's great that the uh, this happened on a episode that we were already planning to do a Sega Racing System on because. Um, it directly ties to a game that we're about to talk about. But yeah, yeah Na- Naomi and the Dreamcast, as we're going to talk about in the next segment, are you know basically intertwined. They, they're they pretty much the same hardware. Naomi is the uh, arcade version of it. I think there were two iterations as well. There was like a Naomi and Naomi 2. But um, yeah, so this basically means a crazy taxi in Ferrari F355 uh, would be possible. I mean, Ferrari's almost assuredly not going to happen, so I won't get your hopes up for that. But Crazy Taxi, I would say, is definitely uh, within the running for, for a Sega Ages uh, kind of uh, re redone through Sega Ages kind of uh, effort. So that's 
amazing. You know, I'm really excited yeah, for that. As sure. long as M2 gets the original music, and I'm sure they will because they do every. They don't half-ass a single goddamn thing. Um, <laughs> then, really then it would be it would be really great, and that unlocks all the Dreamcast games as well. So, like I said, I'm super excited for Virtual Racing on the Switch. They announced it. Well, they didn't. They they heavily teased that it was going to have some kind of multiplayer mode, uh, online multiplayer, which. Even if the only people who are playing it are me and you, Brendan, I'm still psyched for that. <laughs> oh, definitely. The, so. the guys are just so good at what they do, and um, it's why any port they make interests me to a certain degree. Even if it isn't a game that I hold nostalgia for or I'm not a fan of, I know they're going to do it justice. And for every like two of us who love virtual racing, there's somebody that's going to love one of the other games they make that maybe isn't huge. And that's why I love those that team. They they just give it their all and try and make it as faithful as possible while also adding new additions that even enhance the experience. Absolutely, yeah. I, I cannot wait. And uh, we have a couple of these Sega Ages games are already out. Uh, I think the Fantasy Star one is out and uh, Gain Ground and you know various old Sega titles. Um, but I'm hoping the virtual racing isn't too far behind. And, you know, they did 3D. They did one for uh, the 3DS of OutRun. But unfortunately, I, I don't think that any of that applies to the Switch. But yeah, I just want to see more. Uh, I want to see them try out more Sega Racing games. I think it'd be super exciting once those finally drop. Yep. Yeah, so that ends the news portion. But uh, yeah, like I said, don't be upset because we're basically going to be talking about all this stuff again <laughs> when we do Sega Racing <laughs> exactly. System. So we'll be right back. Welcome back to Time Extend, and yeah, we've got a Sega Racing System for you this week. We're going to be talking about another Dreamcast racing game, and this could be none other than Ferrari F355 Challenge, Passion Rasa. Ra- Ra- Rosa? How did I? Rasa. Rasa, yeah. Yeah, um, that's good. <laughs> so yeah, this is uh, Yu Suzuki's love letter to uh, the Ferrari F355 uh, car he owned, and... Um, you finally got a chance to play this recently, Brendan, and I'm sure you have a lot of thoughts about it. We weren't sure where to go with our next uh, SRS topic, but I think this is a good one because it's a game that I feel like gets overlooked by a lot of people on both the sim... We only talk about this divide, but the sim and arcade end of the spectrum just because, like, it is really technically... It is a sim racer. Like, it's a full-on sim racer, but it was one that, to get the full experience, you could only ever play in the arcades. And it was made by Sega, which doesn't really, never really had that reputation. And for a long time, not a long time, but for a good year, it was exclusive to Dreamcast, a system nobody owned. And once it came out here, 
Uh, by that time, it looks like, yeah, September 2002, so um, on the PS2 was, was when it got re-released there. So Gran Turismo 3 was already out. So it just has this kind of weird history of, of being in every place at the wrong time, uh, which is unfortunate because it's it's not a perfect game, but it's a, it's a pretty charming one, I would say. Compared to Sega GT, this is an absolute <laughs> masterpiece. Put it that way. That's absolutely true. So we'll get into the uh, the basic history of this title. Um, so developed by the legendary AM2 studio and uh, directed and produced by Yu Suzuki, who owned his own F355, and it's reckoned that he collected data from his own car to build the physics engine and sourced data from his friends who were also uh, professional Ferrari Challenge competitors. And um, it, weirdly enough, it was published by Acclaim, which uh, I, I have in my notes RIP next to because uh, Acclaim, <laughs> is, Acclaim is no longer with us. It does kind of, it concerns me. I mean, maybe it says something about Sega's financial state at this time that they had games that they developed on their systems that they could not publish. I mean, that seems kind of amazing to me. Like, that's not something that happens anymore. You don't see Gran Turismo published by Deep Silver. Like, no, that, no. It doesn't happen. <laughs> it just doesn't. It was a very weird time period because I'm pretty sure Acclaim also um, published a port of um, Crazy Taxi on the PlayStation yes. 2 as well. They were responsible for a lot of Sega stuff, especially when they moved from uh, from first to third party. Very weird. I I don't know why that's the case. I can only assume it's because of fa- uh, Sega's financial state. But um, yeah, so published by Acclaim, which I actually found out is uh, this, this won't mean anything to you but they're from Glen Cove New York or they were which is uh right around the the block from my childhood home in Long Island so, oh yeah that's cool that was surprising I didn't know about that but anyway um so the arcade release was on that Naomi hardware we talked about earlier in the show that was in July of 1999 it got ported to Dreamcast in uh, the fall of 2000 uh retitled F355 Challenge Passion Rasa and then came to PlayStation 2 in September of 2002 after Sega was no longer a first-party uh, company, and they started producing games for other platforms. So, yeah, you, you have about two years from the Dreamcast one to a PS2 one, and they're almost exactly the same game. Um, I, for a long time, I, I had the and still have the Dreamcast one since the game came out. Uh, me and, and my family had that title, and then within recent years, after years of trying to find this game on PS2, the PS2 version of it. And I talked a little bit, a little bit about this on a previous version of Time Extend. I finally dug it up at the retro game store not too long ago, and uh, it was a big get for me. Not because I expected the game to be significantly better or different in any way, but just because it's one of those things I wanted for so long. Just because yeah. I looked for it and I couldn't find it. Even these PS2 games uh, were basically being. Um, pretty much stripped from uh, from retailers in favor of, you know, PS3 and, and then PS4 and newer generations of hardware. So, and, and it, it's an interesting port for reasons I'll discuss later, but um, I, I think the best place to start with these discussions is just, uh, Brendan, because you're new to these games, for you to just give your overall uh, outlook. Yeah, so um, I'm actually very impressed with the game manages to achieve by comparison to the other Dreamcast racers because it is very much on the sim end of the spectrum, I would say. Um, it's very difficult for someone who's not played it before to understand that behind the 
absolutely god awful music, which we'll talk about in a bit. That there's a a nice uh, driving experience that includes like on the fly driving aids changes. Oh yeah, quite a, a nice selection of circuits. For example, um, you get Sugo in here, which is a track you don't see very often, and it's it's actually really fun. One of my favourites in Project Cars too, funnily enough. So it's happy to see it here, mm-hmm. and. Um, yeah, the championship mode is once again it's it's very challenging because you actually see the AI cars kind of place in multiple places at the end of races, rather than just oh there's a rabbit at the front, it's always the best. Yeah. You see the kind of pack mix up and that's exciting because like I, I won my championship without finishing first very often and that hmm. that's more like real racing in the sense that unless there's a car out there that's much better than the rest. And because we've only got one car here, um, that can be the case. Um, th- there's a lot of exciting racing, and um, the tracks are also recreated really well. They-, they feel fun to drive on, and yeah, I would say initial impressions from the five or six hours I've put in is that it's probably one of the, the Dreamcast games that I've been shocked to find on the console, especially because I wasn't very familiar with the game in the first place. Yeah, it's a you you start out by saying the game is hard and it is very hard um yeah so so Yu Suzuki basically he doesn't consider this a a video game he considers it a racing simulator full stop and uh that's relevant for a number of reasons one of which is that I believe I read a while ago that uh Rubens Barrichello had one of these in his home uh as as a simulator for him to learn because many of these tracks uh ended up you know, we're on F1 calendars at the time, and uh, and I'll go through a track list right now. So, the arcade version only had, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six of these, and they were Motegi, and it was just the oval version of Motegi. Uh, Suzuka East, Monza, which, this is Monza from around 98, so it doesn't have the same first corner chicane complex that yep. we know now. It kind of has those, like, two, like, kind of stair-step chicanes, which are significantly worse because two chicanes are worse than one um <laughs> that has sugo which is uh like you were saying a fantastic track i love sugo uh, especially a, a great track on the super gt calendar the full version of suzuka which they count as a separate track and uh long beach which is also in its uh, 98 configuration it's a good yep. mix because you get you get some japanese tracks uh you get monza which is you know the the hallowed grounds of Ferrari, and you get Long Beach, which is something that really the only the only series that ran there, I think, were pretty much like IndyCar slash Kart, and uh, or one or the one or the other because they were kind of tied together. And um, whatever version of IMSA was around in the late '90s, but Long Beach is a really cool circuit. So those were the ones that came out when the original arcade release came out but when they came out with the dreamcast version they added a bunch of exclusives uh atlanta which is another oval uh the nurburgring gp course laguna seca sepang and fiorano and F- the inter- the interesting thing about fiorano is that it's it's ferrari's test course and you could only i think do time trials there you couldn't actually race there that's that's so typical of ferrari video games isn't oh yeah it? They, yeah. For so long, they had those weird restrictions on what you could and couldn't do. Yeah, and it's interesting too because um, we got years later, like 10 years after us, we got a game from System 3 called uh, Ferrari Challenge as well, 
uh, that was a Ferrari Challenge Trophy Pirelli. I think it also had Fiorano, and it might be a similar situation where you couldn't race there. But yeah, Ferrari obviously, as we know, is very protective of their licenses, and yeah, you know, is I I think companies. Just as a quick aside, I think if it, it, maybe I'm projecting a little too much, but I think if some companies like Ferrari and as we've been talking about in previous shows, Toyota can tell that the developer, the publisher is really earnest or, or really has like a trust for that entity. Then they're willing to kind of play ball with them in a way. Like, like what I mean by that is like Toyota, right? Toyota's cars aren't in any games anymore, pretty much except for Gran Turismo, but they're willing to do it for Gran Turismo because I think they've had a long relationship with, um, with polyphony and with kaz and and they trust them and there's probably a little bit of like intra japanese like okay we you know we know you guys you're one of us and i think in a weird way uh ferrari and sega actually share that relationship because yu suzuki obviously developed outrun and um and yeah. outrun was <laughs> outrun interestingly did not license the ferrari testarossa but um yeah the testarossa was already a, a famous car but became an even more famous car because of outrun because outrun was such oh, a definitely. huge hit and uh yeah and obviously yu suzuki was a full-on uh you know ferrari amateur driver and and raced himself and owned an f355 so he was a customer and i think it there there was no disputing that he had a a genuine attachment and uh and love and affinity for the brand and i think ferrari could see that and i think that's where some of these um, some of these stories come from. So j- just as a quick aside, like I think that's the only way this game was allowed to be made. It, it only could have been done by Sega and probably by him. Yeah, th- yeah. that would that would make sense given like the the very strange scope of the game for only including this Ferrari specifically and um, the track list like we've talked about. It's so varied and there's obviously some inclusions in there. That were purely, I'm imagining, like you Suzuki's favorite tracks as well, because it's weird to have Long Beach in there, like you were commenting on. Adam. And yeah. It's like, just there's quite a few oval circuits, which is pretty odd. Atlanta is a very strange one. I think these are tracks that the Ferrari Challenge series went to, because if I'm not mistaken, a, a good number of them were in Trofeo Pirelli as well, and Atlanta might have been one of them. So, yeah, I, I think it just was trying to hit some of the. Uh, some of the places the series actually went to but all of the tracks uh the the six originals as well as the ones that were added to dreamcast and ps2 versions made their way to uh, another title in the arcades called ferrari or called f355 challenge 2 colon international course edition um which is funny one because the first version had international courses and two it's not really a sequel i mean it's really more of a 1.5 it's the same game with more content so that's kind of uh, an interesting distinction there. Because when, when I initially read, like, oh, there's a Ferrari uh, Challenge 2, I was amazed that this game got a sequel I never heard of, and then quickly <laughs> discovered that it wasn't really a sequel. Um, so, yeah, yeah I, I think to talk about the physics, the, this is such a simple game in terms of you really do only get that one car. And, uh, you, you know, you, you have a, a decent selection of tracks, but it's obviously just the... Uh, simulator in the purest sense of the word the physics have a lot to do with the success or failure of the game depending on how you feel about it and I think this is a for the time 
it's a it's a very sound driving experience. Um, definitely harder than Gran Turismo was at the time. Like even GT three, like without For questioning. Sure. Not necessarily do I mean that that means it's more realistic. It's it's just harder. Um, breaking points in, in particular, you have to be very early on the brakes in this game, and that that's a reason why. I could not enjoy it at all when I was a kid. I would just miss every miss every single breaking point, and uh, you really have to follow those boards because if you don't, you'll you'll be spinning out uh, in the uh, in the sand traps and whatnot. But um, braking important uh, in terms of of steering. It has this weird dichotomy where sometimes it's very responsive, and sometimes it's so slow and like the, the the loss of grip is so like very slight and carry that over over a length of time to the point where yeah. you don't really even realize it's gone until it's gone and you can't ever feel it coming back so you just kind of do this like lazy slide in a lot of cases to the outside of the track and then once you're on the grass you're done i mean it's it's so hard to move when you're on the grass in this game I feel like Suzuka East kind of highlights that the most because you've got all those S-bends and like if you miss the, the kind of apex from one of those corners it's as if the car just decides nope, you've, you've messed up. Yeah, yeah. When, when you mess up in this game it's very hard to get back. Now, interestingly, if you like if you turn traction control off and you get sideways there is an element to like you can carry out a drift in this game. It's not like because I feel like that's something that a lot of racing game from this time period really yeah. didn't allow is like it, it's like oh you've you've lost traction you're done you you can <laughs> kind of dance on that edge but it's a very there's just something weird about it. i just don't get the feedback that i do in a lot of other sim racers including you know gran turismo three and four where it's like i know where it's going and i can kind of counteract it it's almost like you can tell it's happening, but you can't do anything to stop it. Like to a certain extent, like I'm saying, like you can drift a little bit, but like once it gets to a certain point, you're just like, I am basically a passenger at this point, and uh, and that's the way it's gonna be. It's it's very weird, and I'm sure the way we're describing it doesn't sound good, but it it, le- it legitimately is an enjoyably like an enjoyable driving experience. It's just a strange one, which is not not at all weird for this time period because you know obviously. Um, now there are tons of sim racing games on consoles, but back then there weren't, and everybody was going at it from a, a very different way. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think the, the weird way of describing it would be like, it feels like it's a train on rails in the sense that you're a passenger, but the rails are going absolutely fucking everywhere. <laughs> like, there, there's no there's no blockage to you drifting and stuff, but it's as if the game almost predetermines what the outcome will be. Sometimes, because it, the driving is good, that's the weird thing, we're trying to explain it here and we might be making it sound bad, but it's a it's a good, enjoyable driving experience, but it definitely has its issues with um, um, the feedback, like you were saying, there, there, there's pretty much none. Um, it's it's a sim, and like, this is, a, this is a weird comparison, I don't know if you'll agree, but I feel like when you first turn it on because you see there's one car, and like six or so tracks off the bat before you unlock the other ones. Um, it's not actually too unsimilar to like Sega's full arcade games. So when you turn it on and, and see that that level of control that you've got over the cars is more similar to real life, it's pretty daunting. And I mm. think that's one of the reasons why 
internally, I keep mistaking it for an arcade game like Midrace. <laughs> and as a result, that's why I don't hit the braking lines and stuff. Yeah, it's, it is really jarring because this game is very, very hard. And, and the championship mode is something I struggled with a lot. Um, you know, I, I think you're just a better driver than me in general, Brendan. That's why you're able to, to beat all the all the rounds of uh, Sega Rally 2 and I think you're just better than me which is fine but no I I eventually was able to get down um I think at least I forget how the championship progression works because it's been a couple weeks since I played it and uh my notes don't really oh there's um okay so in the Dreamcast one there's only one version but I think in the PS2 there's easy normal and hard variants sometimes the championship isn't too bad other times it's um I think, you know, I think why this is in the Dreamcast one, once you complete the first year, you're on to a second, and I think that's where it gets a lot more difficult. Yes, yeah. definitely. Yeah, so so I struggled at that point, and uh, part of the issue with that is that um, the AI I don't have a serious problem in, with in this game, except for the fact that the collision detection is easily the worst part about this game, and when you hit another driver, very, very weird things happen. Like, it, yes. it's impossible. Yep. It's almost like the game, like... It's almost like it it wasn't programmed to like allow for collision. So when collisions do happen, it, it's it's basically just this kind of like unforeseen consequence of like this could play out in a number of ways and the designers did not account for any of them. So at that point you really are a passenger. But yeah, sometimes you'll hit cars and you'll just both go spearing off in different directions that are totally random. Sometimes you'll kind of get stuck inside of another car for a little bit and you'll just kind of do this thing where like you're clacking against them and you bounce off of them back and <laughs> forth. Um, and then when you hit a wall, it's, you know, it's just as bad. Oh, I was going to say about that when you hit walls and stuff, like it's almost like a Lakitu effect from Mario Kart where yeah. the car manages to spin on its axis kind of directed towards the road that's a very weird um very jarring um experience yeah very very strange um but like we're saying you know it's it's a quirky game in terms of its physics as well but uh today we're so spoiled with all the sim racers we get that you know our criticisms are more honestly surprised that in spite of all this the game is still very very fun to play but Something that I always thought was very interesting about this game, and it's something that bothered me a lot when I was a little kid, because the little kids are very superficial, is that there is no chase cam. And yeah, and that, yeah, that was, <laughs> that was like the first half an hour of my gameplay trying to figure out a way to change the cam. <laughs> yeah, I I totally understand why because you know this is a simulator after all, and and if you play the game in the arcades or if you've ever seen the arcade cabinet of this game, it's got. Some of the versions had three uh, a triple monitor setup, so yeah. you know very ahead of its time in that sense. Uh, you know now we've got all the the full on serious sim racers with their uh, triple monitor cockpits and whatnot. But for uh, Sega was doing this back in '99, and yeah, I mean I'm not I'm not surprised, but it did kind of bother me because it's also you only get one view in this game, and it's just. It's a cockpit view, but it's that kind of, and this this won't make sense to anybody who hasn't played these games, but it's that kind of Daytona One cockpit view where, like, yes, you yep. you see like the upper ninth of of the dashboard and the steering wheel, and you see hands. Well, I guess in Daytona you don't see hands, but and you see part of the hood, 
but there's no there's no windscreen you're not you don't feel like you're singing anything it honestly feels like you're sitting in a bumper car because that's in terms of the proportions that's how small the cockpit is to the rest of the vehicle and your surroundings I, I was going to call it the soapbox view. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. like a soapbox racer, that type of thing. It's um, it's very weird and um, incredibly old-fashioned. And I think at the time, it could have still been considered old-fashioned. I mean, we were starting to get like full, real inside car kind of views at that point. Because I'm pretty sure the Call of Duty games started to do that, didn't they? Yeah, um, they they did that on the PS2. PS2. Well, they did that yeah. actually on the PS1. Colin wow. McRae 2 had a, had a cocky view. Yeah, that, that game was so ahead of its time. But yeah, so a couple weird things about it. Um, now, I well, before we get off the physics uh, discussion completely, uh, when you were playing the game, I don't know how much you looked into it, but did you uh, did you read about Nazo Drifting at all? I didn't, actually. No. Okay. So Nazo Drifting is, uh, remember snaking in uh, Mario Kart DS? Yep. Yeah, so Nezo Drifting is kind of like that. So if you go on YouTube and you find um, some videos of of really professional gamers playing the game uh, who are very good at the game, there is this exploit where you can kind of dance on the edge of grip pretty much and literally just turn the wheel back and forth as quickly as possible. This is not at all a realistic drifting technique. It's purely just like lock to lock over and over again in the middle of a corner. And... It helps you go through corners faster. It helps you go through corners faster than if you were just driving with a grip style or just, you know, driving conventionally. It's very, very odd to watch. Uh, I'm not surprised that there is an exploit like that in this game because, <laughs> yeah. again, you know, for all the all the physics discussions that, that, that we've had about to this point, it is very weird. But it, it, as I'm playing the game, it's not something you can really do with the controller from what I understand. So I barely even attempted it. But... The thing about it is that when you drift, you you almost kind of like it's weird, but when the revs pick up, like you kind of pick up speed when you drift a little bit in this game to a certain extent, yeah. and then you kind of lose it again. But I I think that's why like these people are are going back and forth very quickly on the steering wheel, and they're actually picking up speed rather than losing it, and they're able to to drive really fast in that way. So it's it's very interesting if you're interested in this game. I. Uh, you know, I encourage you to go on YouTube if you haven't heard about it already, because it's a it's a very odd thing to watch in motion. <laughs> I just want to know if that was a, a driving style you Suzuki deployed in his real racing career. <laughs> you know, I highly doubt it because uh, if that was the case, he probably wouldn't be with us anymore. But, <laughs> yeah. but thankfully, he is, and he's making Shenmue three. So yeah. <laughs> Uh, so yes, now now we should talk about the soundtrack, which I think goes down as one of the worst in Sega's racing history. <laughs> I, I I just sum it up in one sentence basically. Um, it's trying to be Guns and Roses, and it's more like Salt and Chillips. <laughs> it's, it's just so, it's like one of those um, impression bands that play like really small bars and stuff, like tribute acts. To like the eighties, it's just absolutely weird. I, I'm not sure what's going on. And I actually have a pretty funny story in the sense, like bef- at the start of races and stuff, I was sure I could hear like a voice really murmured in the background, like, almost talking to me. Yeah, and I thought it was like a crew chief or something. Yep. And um, every time it would come on, I try so hard to hear what the hell it was saying without like, changing the um, sound settings, and I couldn't make it out for the life of me. And then. At one point, I managed to realise that it was a, a DJ 
Yes. In a fucking circuit racing sim. What is going on? Yep. Yep. So that it's just such a weird like tonal disconnect between the serious nature of the game and then you have like you yeah you have these these like kind of fake Japanese Guns N' Roses songs which I actually <laughs> I somehow know a lot about now that I've done research on the game I'll get into in a second but that and then also you have these like kind of like Top Gun style guitar riffs that like take you in and out of menus and things in the game like it has this very 80s rock feel to it but you're driving cars that were built in like the mid 90s and you know this is a very modern experience with modern driving aids and modern circuits and whatnot it it makes no sense um i think you suzuki at this point was just starting to become very very nostalgic for a certain time of his life and and that's how this started but uh yeah so the soundtrack is super interesting um because as I came to discover, there are two Japanese uh, metal bands that are in this game. Uh, one, well, actually, uh, two two artists, rather. Uh, and I have their names, and I don't know who they are, but I, I like to put names to these things. So, Genki, yeah. Genki Hitomi of the band Vow Wow, a, game I, a right. band I you know would not know, and you wouldn't either. And Minoru Nihara, who, and then both of these men are apparently very accomplished uh metal you know rock musicians in japan and we'll take your word for it yes and and we're big in the 80s so their songs are in this game that is somewhat interesting what's more interesting than that is i did a ton of research on this dj like (laughs) you have you have no idea like how much i was like like how long i was sitting in front of a computer looking up information on this guy and uh his name is he is a real dj as it turns out and his name is uh alan J, which you can actually you can actually kind of hear him say that in the game uh but his voice is like you're saying there are murmurs there and it doesn't really make a make a whole ton of sense um his name is alan J, and he oh god what's he has a brother apparently in japan that is way more famous than he him who he is and, and his name is like chris uh chris something but yeah so so basically him and his brother are two japanese american well i think they were born in america or they were born in hawaii or something like that and they went to japan and became djs so they can speak english but they're also kind of like I guess spent most of, most of their lives in Japan, which is why this guy has a very strange accent, and he's trying to affect he's trying to affect some kind of like U.S. like American DJ like rock '80s DJ voice, and it doesn't quite work. And I think that's why, because this guy has a, a very interesting mix of like an American accent mixed with a Japanese accent, and he spent all his life there, um, and he's still working today. As it turns out, he's still a DJ and. Uh, yeah, you can find out if you just uh, do some light Google Google searching. You can find out all about DJ Allen Allen J. Yeah, I don't know. I found this. I found this shocking. Like, or not shocking, but just like really interesting that they got an actual DJ, and uh, that I was able to find the guy and his his basic history in a matter of like two hours. I was going to ask, did you find out why he's in the game, or is that just one of those mysteries we'll never know? No, no, I, I didn't find out why he's in the game, and I don't think we'll ever know why he's in the game. It's so strange, like like you're saying, it's the total tonal disconnect of a guy who's saying, no, this is a proper sim, 
here's an American DJ <laughs> introducing Japanese rock bands. It's so it's so weird because it, it. I mean, it's weird for all the reasons we've discussed, but I think it's just really cool too. Like now that I know who this guy is, it, it just gets me very excited. Like to know that. Oh, okay, Chris. Oh, that okay. That's I found his name. This is how obsessed I am with him. His name is uh, Alan Pe- Alan J. Pepler, and uh, right. his brother's name is Chris Pepler. So actually, if you if you were to go on YouTube and you looked up, um, I think YouTube Live was doing some event in Japan or something like that. His brother is actually like the MC for the event. So so that I'll promise I'll start. I'll stop talking about this now. But I was. I was going to say, is this the topic for the next mirror mode? It, mi- it might be. It might be. I'll just. I'll just talk about. You know, maybe I'll get an interview. That would be really cool. And uh, okay, ask. Extent. Yeah, I'll ask. I'll ask this Alan dude if he uh, if he remembers. You know, getting paid for Ferrari F three fifty five challenge, and he probably won't. And I'll have to remind him and play voice <laughs> clips, and he'll be like, "Ah, oh, that's strange. I, I must have been like high or something." So <laughs> you changed your life. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Changed my life. I mean, the funny thing is, again, it's not a good soundtrack. The DJ doesn't belong there. It all sounds horrible, but it's in the game. And, and actually, if you go on YouTube and just listen to the soundtrack or, or find clips of the game, you will find a lot of commenters who really lo- who really dig the soundtrack. And I kind of understand that because like, yeah. as much as we don't like it, this is a sound that, that it's a type of music you would never, ever hear in a video game. Like, oh, of course, yeah. especially a racing game. So, you know, you think about the same type of people who played this as maybe enjoyed 18 wheeler, uh, pro trucker or whatever, back in the day, that, that old, uh, Sega racer, if you can call it a racing game. And yeah, I could see those people digging the soundtrack to this, you know, if you, if you liked, yeah, if you like eighties <laughs> hair metal. Yeah. So. I've just found out that Chris Petler. Um, voiced Gus in Crazy Taxi. <laughs> oh, that's totally believable. Yeah. Wow. Um, and he also did the commentary for Formula Championship Beyond the Limit from 1994, Sega CD game. Wow. That is pretty cool. I, you know, I don't know if this is going to matter to anybody else, but if I was a Time Extend listener, I would be feeling pretty proud of my host right now for, for doing all of this legwork for totally <laughs> inconsequential shit. Um. <laughs> that, that's, that just kind of comes with the rights of being a Sega fan though doesn't it like I feel like everybody who loves Sega has that in them just like researching the most obscure stuff like even when like YouTube was just starting off I basically used it to watch like old Japanese adverts of like, Sonic the Hedgehog and stuff and it's like why why would I care about that but that's just being a Sega fan as far as I'm concerned <laughs> yeah, no, it really comes with the territory. I mean, I was I was astounded with myself when I revealed that uh, Sega buried the uh, Carlos Sainz losing the championship reference into their ads <laughs> yeah. in Spain for uh, Sega Rally Two. So I think this is just a continuation of that. But we'll stop talking about uh, our new best friend Alan Jay and uh, <laughs> now briefly talk uh, touch upon the PS2 version. Because I, you know, I, I had the ability to play this game, and the differences are pretty small. Um, you get so all the tracks that are in the Dreamcast version, the the international course ones, at least the the ones that came from the ones that are extras, kind of. You unlock them as you play the game, but in the PS2 version, they're there from the very start, which is nice because you. Good I mean, idea. Yeah, I. 
if I want to go Nurburgring, I shouldn't have to lose the championship 10 times before I have the ability to do that. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, so, uh, so that's nice. Um, the graphics are an interesting point because like, and we haven't talked about the graphics of this game at all, but it's a, it's a pretty good looking game. And I mean, it's not, it's not surprising, you know, Sega, the first party title would be good. I mean, we were surprised by how bad Sega GT looked, but this is uh, definitely on on another level, and uh, I believe it's sixty frames, right? If I remember correctly, yeah, pretty I smooth. So. And it's even got the Magic Weather system from Shenmue as well in here, which is really cool. Oh yeah, and they call it Magic Weather too, which is pretty funny. Yeah, um, it's pretty cool to get that name drop. <laughs> yeah, all it really means is that the weather is dynamic and changes, but it doesn't change in the middle of a race. It just means that when you start the race, <laughs> yeah. when you start the race, it might be different. You know, that's really it means you either will get rain or sunset or you know clear skies in the afternoon or whatever. But uh, graphically, the PS2 version is interesting because it seems like. Like, the car models are a little more detailed. They have, like, reflections and things. Yeah. But they kind of look less accurate. It was almost like they went to the trouble of modeling more things, like the brake lights and things, but they, they got kind of the proportions wrong, so they look a little bit weird. Uh, also, it kind of has this, like, soft sheen to it. it. As a Dreamcast fan, I always cling to this this thing that, like, in the very early days of the PlayStation 2, its games pretty much looked worse than the Dreamcast's. And it took because the because the PS2 was a hard system to develop for, and like uh, I mean, Ridge Racer Five I think is still a pretty good looking game, but you get a lot of that like flickering and those like um, uh, like yeah. jaggies on on objects and things, and you get some of that in the PS2 version of F355 as well because it was quite an early game in the system. Obviously, when once a PS2 once developers had enough experience with it, they they were able to blow Dreamcast stuff out of the water. But that that came a couple years later, so. Um, that's interesting, but what's more interesting than that is they put in a chase cam, which is very, <laughs> very, very nice. I appreciate that because it's, you know, it's tough with a game that's just difficult to really get a sense of your surroundings. I know it breaks the realism aspect of it, but the way the collision detection is in this game, you want, you know, you want chase cam sometimes. Um, championship mode has, as I said earlier, easy, normal, and hard options, and there are different events too, uh, so they kind of flesh that out a little bit. But the big addition to this, if you could really call the big addition, is something called the Great Driver Challenge, which uh, I love because the way it's described, it's almost like a, it's basically like you would you would go into a typical race scenario, but you get points for things, and you could get points for overtakes and drifting and slipstreaming, and you get more points depending on your finishing position. But, so it's heart attack mode from outrun then. Yeah, kind of. Uh, except <laughs> except no UFOs and no like uh, ah. trying to collect hearts and things. But <laughs> the funny thing is that the way it's described is it's uh, great driver challenge is here to teach you quote gentleman gentlemanly driving and technique. Ah, <laughs> uh, good old gen- gent gentleman was that gentlemanly <laughs> drive gentlemanly. like a gentleman. <laughs> Well, the, the funny thing is, like, yeah, if you if you pass someone without hitting them or, you know, the, the, you get points for that. If you hit them, obviously, you lose points. If you go off the track, if you put a tire off, you lose points, which is really unfair. Um, and it, But the weird thing is, if you drift, you gain a point. In my opinion, there's nothing gentlemanly <laughs> about drifting. Drifting is, like, the most, like, fucking Neanderthal, like, like, masculine thing that you can do. It's not... 
you know. But see, that's the thing. It isn't about driving gentlemanly, is it? I, I like that we stumble through that word so much. You know what? I bet I bet DJ Allen J can say that word really well, and we can't. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but um, I like the idea of this mode, and I can also just imagine Yu Suzuki expressing his disappointment with a simple shake of the head every time we put a tire off the track. But if we decide to be a hoonigan, we get that thumbs up of approval. Yeah. Well, I mean, when you think about how Outrun is basically entirely based on drifting well at least outrun two anyway so yeah he loves his drifting <laughs> he does so that really covers everything i had to share in my research on uh, this dj i mean ferrari f355 challenge um, and and basically <laughs> my my lasting impression of it is it's kind of like a it's kind of like a swan song for for sega racing because Outside of Outrun 2, this is kind of the end. Like, this is, I have it down, like, the first true Sega racer that made it to other consoles. And that kind of has it in this weird point between, like, you know, Sega of old and the company they would become. And as I said, you know, we only got Outrun 2 after this pretty much. So it is, it's kind of like you can you can start to see things winding down. I don't, I don't know if anyone knew it at the time, but... Um, yeah. In retrospect, it definitely feels that way to me. I think my final thoughts are very similar in that sense. And what I took away was like this was a a glimpse of what could have been where Sega were taking like their structure of arcade racers and trying to like maybe trying to apply it to a more sim like fashion, which was getting more popular. Like, can you imagine a game structured like Sega Alley but with like Colin McRae's handling, like? Mm. I wouldn't have been surprised to see Sega maybe give that a go, and that's what I get from this. Like, they were looking at the trends of Gran Turismo and that type of thing, and Yu Suzuki really loved his Ferrari, and <laughs> this game came together, and who knows? Um, I think that it's it's a fun game, and it is a bit of a swan song, but at the end of the day, it's another one of these Dreamcast games that makes you say, oh, if it had, if it had done a little bit more, it could have been better, but at the same time, I'm quite happy with the absolute craziness that it still has in terms of the soundtrack because if it didn't have that, it might not feel as distinctly Sega as it should. Definitely. I mean, can you imagine this handling model and this engine, but for Sega GT? You know. Oh man, that that would be that that would have fantastic. been like that would have been Gran Turismo three level. You know, I, I mean, Gran yeah. Turismo three probably would have been better, but it would have been. It would have been very comparable, and it would have at least made people who had Dreamcast not felt not feel like they were getting uh, shortchanged uh, with their choice in system. And I, I feel like the Sega Racing System discussion always goes back to the fact that, um, yeah, Sega's best work wasn't, at least in terms of racing games, was not done on this console. It was it was the home of a lot of weird ports of things that were great in the arcades but never quite hit home, hit the home console with the same kind of um, just overall sense of quality. Uh, whether you look at Daytona or Sega Rally or... I mean, F-355, this is a very faithful port because, like I said, I was running on Naomi, and Naomi is um, essentially, I think it's like a Dreamcast with more RAM or something like that. So it's basically the same system, but... At the same time, F-355 is a very singular experience, and it's a very basic experience, and it feels like a very old-school game in spite of what was at the time a very advanced handling model. So 
yeah, there's always something you can point to, right? With all these Dreamcast games where you're like, if they just did this, yeah. they would have gotten it right. And and the more I think back on it, the more I think that like the only the only time that Sega came out with a, a racer on a home console that was at least in my lifetime that truly delivered on everything it was supposed to and was just like the most you could have hoped for at the time was a Saturn port of Sega Rally. Yeah. I would totally agree with that. I think you've summed it up very well there because if you look at Sega Rally 2 and the Dreamcast, we talked about how um, the, the initial conversation started with us saying how much we enjoyed it and then it did kind of hit home that the Dreamcast effect of but it doesn't have this. It, it runs pretty poorly. If you open your eyes, try not to blink it out. and um, Yeah, it's, it's a bit damning that we always do end up back at this point but at the same time, I think that's why it was a great console to start off with because it highlights why the console failed as well. It just didn't have that killer app. And racing games were very much Sega's bread and butter for so long. But there's always something missing. It's it's a company, I think, caught in the middle of a, of a changing landscape. And Sega, Sega, I think, really did earnestly try a change with the Dreamcast. And if you just take the, the view of the company overall, they, they definitely changed a lot from what they did with the Saturn in terms of the way they designed the system and their marketing and everything, and that's all great. But when it comes to racing fans like us, the the world had moved on. I mean, Gran Turismo, sim racing, these huge experiences with way more cars and tracks and different modes and customization, that was the future. And as much as I love Sega's arcade racers and as, as great as the physics are, having one car and six tracks or ten cars and... 10 tracks like that that wasn't where things were headed things you know they they really struggled by not having something that could seriously compete with Gran Turismo or at least not having it sooner in the system's lifespan albeit it was very short as it was um and yeah I think I think we're just reminded of that every time we do one of these uh uh very very enlightening and very exciting but also slightly tinge of sadness uh Sega Racing System episodes yeah, exactly, and I think the good thing is now we're, we're slowly whittling down the games till we get to MSR on, which I know are two that you're very excited to talk about. So I spent a ridiculous amount of time on Friday for some reason playing Vanishing Point. Like, do you re- Ah, I've seen your talk about this. Uh, yeah. yeah, I actually played quite a bit of Vanishing Point on the PlayStation 1. Oh, so we can have a really good discussion about it then. You might not even need to buy the game because I can just talk about the Dreamcast one and you could talk about the PS1. But yeah, yeah I mean, that, that's a good dynamic. Yeah, that, <laughs> that works well for you. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's another uh, very strange game and I'm not going to spoil or get into that because we should really be ending the show now. But once, once I start talking about this stuff, I really can't stop and that's why we have a podcast. But... Yeah, we're getting to a point now where we've touched on a lot of the Sega one, like the the Sega first party Dreamcast racers, and we can start to talk about some of the third party stuff, which in in a lot of ways is actually more interesting um, because these weren't just arcade titles that were ported. They were totally their own thing. And then uh, once we get to the best game ever made in the history of the world, Test Drive Le Mans, uh, that might be a good place to end it. (laughs) I mean, speaking of Le Mans... um... I've just had a quick look on eBay, and there's actually, a t- finally, a reasonably priced copy, but the interesting thing about it is that it's a pre-production sample disc, 
So Whoa. it's a review copy of the game for twelve ninety five. Oh, you gotta get to that. that. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's cool. Oh, that'd be awesome. <laughs> and like stream the whole thing because I I want to watch it just for myself and see if anything's different. Yeah, exactly. That's what I'm about. Um, it's like the other full fledged copy on eBay still look forty five pounds. This seems like a steal. So. Mm. Yep, Do just it. bought it right then and there, so that would be very exciting. <laughs> Great. All right, so we know what the next episode's going to be then. Well, this was awesome. Uh, I always enjoy these discussions, and uh, I just I love being able to dig up some some dirt on, on weird old games Alan that nobody Jay. remembers. It's always fun. <laughs> Alan Jay. Uh, I think that's going to be our second guest is going to be Alan Jay. You know, we started off strong with Kyle last, uh, last episode, but... Yeah, I mean, we need Ka- to ask him about V-Rally 4 as well i had to get that reference in man we nearly forgot oh right yeah i'm sure he has a lot to say about you i got so confused just now it's like <sighs> well, all right i mean we couldn't have done a full episode without a v rally reference surely so I had to sneak that in, we almost we almost got through it and uh yeah so so i guess the appropriate sign off would be that i hope all of you enjoy v rally for uh, in between now and our next episode where we won't be talking yep. about it except to make some throwaway joke yeah enjoy the masterpiece before we talk about Le Mans which clearly doesn't even compare to V-Rally 4 am I right Adam hey, does that take, hurt to say you take that back <laughs> I fucking love that game so much alright alright so uh, so that has been Time Extend and we will see you one day talking about Test Drive Lamar. <laughs> thank you thanks guys have a good one Thank you.